I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 1, Session 1. Aristotle said that the purpose of art is to entertain and to instruct. My purpose in these podcasts is to entertain you by instructing you in the appreciation of the great art of Shakespeare. A fundamental principle of life is that human beings will not live without meaning. It is the deepest need we have. As Viktor Frankl taught in his book Man's Search for Meaning, people will bear any kind of life so long as we have hope to find meaning in it. Our age is as much in need of meaning as any age in history, and Shakespeare's plays and sonnets make up one of the richest treasuries of meaning available. These podcasts are intended to provide you the knowledge and tools essential to understanding, appreciating, and enjoying the deep meanings available to us in that treasury. I have taught Shakespeare in high school, college, graduate school, and adult education, and serve as a theatrical dramaturge, helping actors to understand the script Shakespeare has given them and to get its meanings across to their audiences. At the end of this podcast, I'll give you a look at the order of the podcasts to come. But let's begin with this question. What's so great about Shakespeare? Shakespeare is the most universally appreciated and admired poet in the history of the world, revered by people from nearly all backgrounds, cultures, nations, languages, and walks of life. But he is not great because he is popular. He is popular because he is great. Shakespeare is great not because he invented new plots, though he rearranged them, his plots were mostly borrowed. He is great not because his plays are long or complex or heavy or old or written in poetry. Many lesser contemporaries of Shakespeare wrote verse plays equally long or complex or heavy. He is great not because he was an original psychologist or political theorist or theologian or educator. Most of his ideas in these areas, though often profound, were not originally his own. Nor is he great because of his huge vocabulary, his ability to make up new words, his vast memory, his natural writing ability, or his good ear. He had all those, but they aren't in themselves what make his achievement uniquely great. Shakespeare is great because his works move people with their breadth and their depth of meaning, their truth to life, their ability to evoke intense emotion and deep insight in response to the comedy and tragedy and mystery of what it means to be a human being, and to do so with luminous clarity, vitality, and authenticity. In Shakespeare's works, we experience revelations of the truth of our own personal world and of the world. What is so great about Shakespeare is that he provides a variety of deep, authentic, meaningful, and hugely entertaining experiences of reality. How did Shakespeare become so great? This question is easy to answer. Nobody knows. Human beings simply don't know where genius comes from or why it appears in this person and not in that, in this age and not in that. The source of artistic greatness is a mystery, even to the artist. The quality that gives a work of art its greatness comes from a combination of all the talents and gifts the artist brings to the work, plus something else 
that he or she cannot command, something that comes according to a schedule he or she cannot control. The artist can prepare a place for that extra something by mastering his art, but its crowning grace, the moving power and depth that make a work what we call great, is a gift. From whom? Modern people might say nature, or chance, or the unconscious, or they might more refreshingly say, we don't know. A Christian poet like Milton would say it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it comes from God. To the ancient Greeks, the givers of these gifts were called the Muses. They were the nine goddesses, daughters of Zeus and Mnemosyne, her name means memory, eventually associated with nine established forms of art, epic or heroic poetry, history, love poetry, lyric poetry, tragedy, hymns in praise of the gods, dance, comedy, and astronomy, that is, poetry about cosmology. From them, we get the term music. Every epic poem in the Western literary tradition begins with an invocation of the muse. This is because the great poets, in fact all great artists, if they are honest, know that if it were merely up to them alone, a work might get made, but greatness would not appear in it. The poet invokes the muse to acknowledge and call upon the mysterious giver of that special gift of greatness, who gives it if and when she wills, or not at all. All the poet can do is to receive it with gratitude. If the muse doesn't give it, it isn't there. So the only answer to the question of where Shakespeare got his particular ability to join the qualities of intellect and feeling, knowledge and belief, memory and invention, language and sound, into plays and poems that bear the stamp of true greatness, is what the poets call the muse. It's the only useful explanation we have. But though we may not know exactly what the muse is, we certainly do know one thing about her. Shakespeare was her darling. What are the elements of Shakespeare's mastery? As little as we can know about where greatness comes from, we can observe the forms it inhabits when it is present. None of the elements I will be mentioning is the cause of Shakespeare's greatness. The cause is hidden. Only the effects of that cause are revealed in these elements. But in discerning them, we can see how richly the muse has stamped Shakespeare's writing with her gift. The first and fundamental element in which we recognize Shakespeare's greatness is the subjects of his plays. Subject is the element of drama that has been least honored in the last century of literary criticism. For about that long, students have been told that not content but only formal qualities matter in judging works of art, that a poem should not mean but be, as if these were opposites. The phrase appears in the poem called Ars Poetica, The Art of Poetry, by Archibald MacLeish, but it later became a prescription. Of course it is true that bad artists can try to tackle great themes and end up producing bad art. And it is true that great artists can raise into greatness themes once thought trivial. 
it is important to attend to the formal qualities of any work as well as to its content. But so long as human beings are human beings, what something is about will matter. A poem must both mean and be. In truth, no one honestly cares much for poems that exist for the sake only of their formal qualities, but don't say anything significant. Whatever your own feelings about recent poetry, it is important to know that Shakespeare lived in an age in which the subject of a work of art mattered. In his plays, there are thousands of lines and images whose subjects, taken out of context, are trivial. But they all exist to give verisimilitude to the whole play, which, even in the comedies, is about something invariably important and usually profound. In Two Gentlemen of Verona, for example, a young girl writes a love letter, then tears it up, then regrets doing so, and tries to put the pieces back together, not an earth-shaking event, but the play in which it happens is about betrayal and forgiveness in love and friendship, and the girl's fancy about the torn words on a sheet of paper exists to help develop and dramatize those larger themes. When we look at Shakespeare's greatest plays, we will be focusing on the most important subjects human beings ever face. Lust and love, separation and reunion, pride and humility, power-hunger and self-sacrifice, crimes like murder, rape, and suicide, and their consequences like punishment and despair, repentance and forgiveness, war and peace, political chaos and political order, injustice and justice, famous historical events and mythical tales, free will and fate, the meaning of life and the meaning of death. In a Shakespeare play, nothing is trivial, because everything is part of the larger subject, which is almost always a great one. What form did these important subjects take? Above all, the form of story. Living long before America's freedom of speech became an ideal, Renaissance playwrights could not explicitly treat the political and religious controversies of the day which were dangerous to be touched upon. In England, the master of the rebels, working for the monarch, made sure nothing went public that would compromise the stability of the regime or the religious establishment. But apart from those limitations, almost any story was fair game. Ancient Greek and Roman mythology, history, epic poetry, romance, and drama, medieval epics and romances, English history, Italian farce, and stories of the falls of famous men of all periods. Shakespeare took his plots from all these kinds of published works and sometimes reworked older plays that had fallen out of fashion. Sometimes the audiences already knew the stories. In Julius Caesar and in Antony and Cleopatra, Shakespeare stuck very close to his sources, mainly Plutarch's lives, in telling the world-shaking actions of his world-famous characters. Sometimes the audience thought they knew a plot, but were in for a big, fat Shakespearean surprise. In The Winter's Tale, which was based on a very popular romance of the time by Robert Greene, Shakespeare changed the ending entirely, no doubt much to the delighted surprise of those who had read the book. Only in The Tempest does Shakespeare seem to have made up his own plot entirely. 
We began this session with the question, what's so great about Shakespeare? And I've just discussed the subjects of Shakespeare's plays. In the next session, I will discuss the elements of vitality, unity, variety, freshness of wit, characters, and poetic language. And in the third session, I'll discuss sound and sense, dramatic action, and what I will call universal realism. Now, I'll end today's podcast by giving you a brief one-time look at the arrangement of the podcasts to come. They will be in two formats. Series 1 will offer the background knowledge helpful in opening the doors to Shakespeare's meanings. These podcasts will be about 20 minutes each and numbered. Series 2 will offer discussions of meaning in individual plays and sonnets. They will often run longer and will be designated by letters A through Z. The two formats will be intermixed for the sake of variety. Once all are uploaded, you will be able to skip around listening to whichever topics interest you. Series 1 on background knowledge begins with a chapter of three sessions called What's So Great About Shakespeare? It will be followed by chapters on Shakespeare's life, theater, language, characters, unity, and conceptual background. Additional chapters will address the early texts, the problem of interpretation, the categories of plays, the sonnets, the other poems, Shakespeare's collaborations, and hypothetical and spurious works. Several podcasts will be devoted to a discussion of the nature of art in general. Finally, I will invite a colleague to join me in two podcasts about acting Shakespeare, one for student actors and one for their directors. In Series 2 on individual works, I will be discussing seven comedies, seven tragedies, five histories, Shakespeare's one satire, two late romances, and selected sonnets. I will welcome specific questions at the email address listed in the information section. Thank you for listening. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare.